<coughs> well, it's good to be here. Thank you for letting us come. And uh, a couple people said they were excited. I'm excited every Sunday I come here. We have so enjoyed the church. So appreciate uh, Pastor and Patty and, and what they bring to us. The amazing thing about this church is the longer we're here, the more we like you. <laughs> That doesn't happen in very many churches, you know. The longer you're there, you're going, oh, what am I thinking, you know. Now that I know these people, and it kind of reminds me of that story, the guy that took off on his boat, and he sailed, and he sailed, and he got too far from shore, and, and uh, his boat capsized. He grabbed a life preserver and made his way to a deserted island, and he thought he'd be picked up in a day or two, and a year later, he's still there. And uh, he hears... Here's a plane off in the distance, runs out of his hut and lights his signal fire and the plane flies over and, you know, dips its wings a couple times and he's so excited and, and uh, he knows he's going to be rescued and sure enough, three hours or so and uh, they see a big Coast Guard helicopter coming in and it lands on the beach and he runs out and the pilot jumps out and the co-pilot and the medic and... He grabs him and hugs him and jumps on the helicopter. And the pilot said, well, where are the others? And he said, there aren't any others. He said, I'm the only one. He said, I'm the only one on this island. He said, why would you ask about anybody else? And he said, well, you've got three huts. He said, why do you have three huts? He said, if you're the only one on here. And he said, well, I live in the middle one. And he said, well, what about the one on the left? He said, that's where I go to church. He said, well, what about the one on the right? And he goes, that's where I used to go to church. So, relationships in churches are tough sometimes, aren't they? But you guys are great. You really are. We are absolutely uh, just enjoying being here. And you're a blessing to us. And, and we hope it's the same. Please pe- uh, pray for your pastor and Patty. I think you're aware that, boy, they're struggling Things are difficult right now, and the enemy just kind of piles on when he can, you know. And that's when you and I get to stand in the gap for them. Uh, We don't need details about anything. We just need to stand in prayer for those people uh, that carry that burden. And so I invite you you to do that for them, okay? Uh, If you're a person who fasts and prays, this would be a good time for them, you know be a good time just to really stand in the gap and and go to battle for them okay if you have your bibles would you turn to acts chapter 19 please acts chapter 19 i haven't preached for a while so any time in the past when I would take a break and come back, I would always try to make up for it time-wise. So it's been several months, so I don't know how long we'll be here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, just kidding. I want to begin reading in verse 11. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. 
but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Would you bow your heads, pray for me, and I'll pray for you at the same time. Father, we are grateful today uh, for the gathering of the saints, for the fellowship of believers this morning. The strength that we gather from that uh, is because you have died on the cross and rose again, and your blood courses through our veins today. And spiritually, we're the children of God. And we do pray for Pastor Jamie and Patty. We just lift them up. Uh, They are in our hearts this morning. And we pray that they will feel the strength of that. And Lord, just watch over everything uh, that is uh, of a concern to them today. Bring uh, Pastor home safely. Reunite them. And may your hand be seen in all that is happening. Now take your word and plant it in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Lead us into truth and accomplish your purposes for this time together. In Jesus' name. Amen. It's about 40 years ago. I'm, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but it was Christmas Eve and uh, our kids were small. Uh, our son would have been three and a half, four. Our daughter would have been one and a half, two, something like that. I don't know. Well, we, we were renting a small farmhouse in Oak Grove just outside of Marietta, out around where B.F. Goodrich was, is. And uh, it was Christmas Eve, as I said, and they were upstairs playing in their bedroom. Diane and I were actually sitting in front of a small fireplace roasting chestnuts on an open fire. We'd never done that before, but we thought it would be time to do that in our life. And so that's what we were doing. And we had some kind of romantic music on. We were young and madly in love at that particular time in our lives. Now we're old and madly in love. Okay? But... We heard one of those sounds from the upstairs that every parent knows was a bad sound. Okay, it wasn't, uh, wasn't somebody dropping something, nothing like that. It was just one of those that you immediately stopped and started up the steps. And we got to the top of the steps, turned down the hallway, and, and our son was walking towards us with blood everywhere. I mean, he had blood all over him from his head. He was not crying because he was in trouble. He knew better. So he, uh, he, he said very calmly, you need to take me to the doctor. <laughs> and we'd already figured that out, you know. So we grab him and uh, grab our daughter. And off to Marietta Memorial we go. And we get to the hospital and uh, take him in. And the doctor said to me, said, what happened? And I said, I don't know. I said, he won't tell us. 
won't tell us what happened. He wouldn't, wouldn't say a word. You ask him what happened, he'd just sit there. And uh, he wouldn't deny anything. We didn't know. And uh, so my wife had uh, our daughter out in the waiting room who must have been so excited by it, she filled her diaper before we left. And my wife had taken nothing for that. So they're out there and, you know, I'm in there. The doctor kept saying, what happened? I said, I don't know what happened. And so they sewed him up. And if you see him today, he still has a scar there. And uh, by the time we got there, he also had about a walnut-sized lump right here. And by uh, Christmas morning, he looked like a raccoon. Both eyes were completely black. But they sewed him up and finished. And then we just sat there for a while. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's Christmas Eve. What, you know, what's going on? And then it dawned on me. They thought we had done it. You know, I mean, even 40 years ago, you know. And so they just kind of kept, you know, putting things off and drawing things out and, and not really saying anything. And back then, they didn't have ER doctors, just regular doctors would work shifts and wander through there. And the, the curtain was open and my doctor came through, Kurt Demlo came through. I think Diane and I may have been the very first patients he had when he moved to Marietta, but he came through, saw us, came in. He said, what happened? And I relayed the entire story to him. I said, Kurt, we were not only patient doctor, we were good friends. I said, Kurt, I think they think we did this. You know, and I told him, I said, we've been here for hours. And I heard him. He went out to the doctor on duty and I heard him say this. I know him. I know him. Speaking of me. And he said that not the case. I was so thrilled to hear him say, I know him. (laughs) You know, I know him. And that's not the case. And they came and they released, discharged us and off we went. But... I was excited that he was willing to say, I know him. If I told you my wife's maiden name and the fact that she spent the first four years of her life in Pennsville, lots of you would go, oh, I know her. You know, I know her family. Some of you bought apples and peaches from her uncle in Malta, but her name's Hickerson. You know, lots of you know Hickerson's in Morgan County. See that? You're going, oh, I know her. You know, it's great to be known. It's wonderful to be known in the right circles. This evil spirit said, I know Jesus and I know Paul. I don't know you guys. (laughs) I don't know who you guys are. I know these two and I don't want to fool with these two. But you seven guys, we don't know who you are. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to beat the daylights out of you. (laughs) We don't know you. I want to be known by name by the enemy. I want to be that way. I want them to come and say, I know Jesus, I know Paul, and I know Carl. And we don't want to fool with them. We don't want to fool with any of those people. Does the enemy know you by name to the point where he said, let's cross the other side of the street. Let's cross the other side. Who knows your name? Who knows you? Anybody? I want the enemy of my soul to know exactly who I am and I want them to avoid me at all costs. Listen, I remember when I grew up, 
there were a couple of kids in Marietta that when I saw them coming, I knew their name and I went to the other side of the street. <laughs> you know? They just had that kind of reputation. Jesus and Paul did. And I want that same thing. We, uh, where we lived before we moved to the house we're in now in August, but where we lived before we just had one of those little antennas, when we went down to where we are now, we couldn't get that. So we ended up getting cable, which gives you lots more shows. I'm not sure that's good. But I turned the TV on, and uh, it, when it came on, there was uh, one of those cop shows on. You know, live cop shows or whatever. And the first scene that, that it was a close-up of two hands that belonged to a deputy holding on to the forearm of somebody they were questioning. And they had him on the, on the trunk of a car. He was leaning over there. This deputy had both hands and it looked like he was holding somebody's leg. That's how big this guy's arm was. And so they're just focusing on that. And you can hear the deputy and he's going, no, 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 no. He said, now, he said, you need to relax. He said, I can feel you tensing up. You know, why don't you just relax? You know, and then they kind of pan back a little bit. And there was a deputy on the other side doing the same thing. And he go, no, that's that's better. That's better. Why don't you do that? No, 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 no. He said, you're tensing up again. Now I can feel you tensing up again. You know, we don't want you doing that. And this went on for a few seconds. And then he said this. He said, now I don't want to have to fight you. And this guy, first time he speaks, he goes, you don't want to fight me. He said, I'm 6'4 and 280. And he said, you guys aren't as big as me. <laughs> and he was right. They backed up. And this guy, the deputy, is about my size. About 180. You know, about 5'10". You know, guy on the other side, the exact same way. You know, and this guy just, he's, no, he said, I'm 6'4". He said, I'm 280. He said, I guarantee you, you don't want to fight me. You know, and they just kept... Trying to negotiate. And he goes, okay. He says, now we're going to move your hand back here. And he picked his arm up and he tried to put it behind him. And that was it. You know, he just had enough. So he started a little bit to fight. And then the camera panned back. And here was a deputy about six feet away. And he took that taser. Boom. (laughs) That guy was on the ground. You know, instantly was on the ground. You know, and he's going, stop, stop, don't do that, please stop, that really hurts, what do you want me to do? And he's flopping around like a fish out of water, man. And he goes, just tell me what you want me to do. And he, he says, roll over on your stomach. And he rolled over, you know, and he said, what do you want me to do? Just please stop, please stop. He said, put your hands behind your back, boom, right behind his back, you know. And he finally got him dragged up and got him cuffed. And he said, don't ever do that again. He said, that really hurts. Yeah, it really hurts. You know what these guys were doing? The deputies were the seven sons of Sceva. Because adjure in the book here that we just read, they adjured the evil spirit. They were negotiating with the evil spirits. That's what that word means. It means they were trying to negotiate some way for them to come out. That's what these deputies were doing. You know who the guy back here with the taser was? That's the Apostle Paul. We're not negotiating. Everything's done. Did you hear Patty this morning? You know, sometimes we forget the victory is already ours. Okay, there's no negotiations. 
And so I want to be spiritually the person with the taser, not the one hanging on here hoping everything works out. That's not where we are as the children of God. I know Jesus. I know Paul. Don't know who you are. Don't know who you are. There's no negotiation with the enemy. We don't negotiate with the enemy. That's already been done. That's already been settled on the cross. So, no, not going to negotiate. Those things are over. Now, here's my question this morning that I want us to take a look at. Is how do we get to that place that Paul was? Why is it that the enemy knew his name and didn't know the seven sons of Sceva? Seven sons of Sceva were the sons of a chief priest. They'd hung around church. They knew the right words to say. They just had nothing in their hearts that really set them apart. So why did the enemy know Paul? Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians. Would you please? Chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And I think the secret is here. I know the secret is here. And it's not really a secret. It's just a place that most of us don't want to go. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead." The secret with Paul was he had completely sold out. He kept nothing. He had given everything. Every, every failure, every success, every fear, every hope in the life of Paul belonged to Christ. We sing that song, don't we? I surrender most. All. <laughs> oh. No, we don't. Lots of us don't. We have that one thing in our lives that we're going to hang on to. And that simply then becomes leverage in our life for the enemy. How many of you grew up with siblings? Yeah, I, yeah, I had five. And the oldest one was the sister. The other five of us were boys. But there was nothing more precious in my life growing up than to hear one of my siblings say I know you know what I did make sure you don't tell mom and dad oh I won't that was that was gold was that not gold to get that sure it was because that's what a couple days later it's you know what I could need to borrow five bucks I have five bucks. Wouldn't give it to you if I had it. What was that? What was that one thing you didn't want me telling mom and dad? Oh, thanks. I thought you could find five bucks. When you hold out, it's leverage. Do you understand? It's, it's leverage 
The worst thing you wanted to hear is when you went and said, I need five bucks. No, I'm not going to give it to you. Oh, what was that one thing? And they go, I already told them. (laughs) Yeah, what? I already told mom and dad. It's over. You can't hold it against me anymore. It's confessed. It's out. No longer is it going to just simply eat away at me. That's where the Apostle Paul was. He said, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Everything else doesn't matter. Everything else doesn't matter. I gave that all up. He he calls it, you know, lost. Rubbish is what he says here. But the real word is manure. He said, it's manure. He said, that's all it is. You can't hold anything against me because I've already confessed everything. I'm not holding on to anything. I'm not concerned about what you think about me. So therefore, enemy, you have no leverage. And therefore, the power of God can simply flow through me with nothing to block it. See, there are people sitting here this morning and we're thinking, if they knew this about me, they may not like me. That's what I'm talking about. It's that one thing. It's that one thing that the enemy comes and says, you don't deserve to be here. I know what you did. And you know what you need? You go, hey, I already told him. <laughs> I already told him. You know, you can't hold that against it. Anytime you... Don't feel the way Paul does. Don't turn into what Paul did. Leverage for the enemy. All his possessions. Your family. Everything that you worry about, you can do nothing about. Give it to God. Why not? Because as soon as God begins to work in your life, the enemy comes and says, "Ah, Did you forget about what you did? You're not going to mention that again, are you? Well, just came to my mind, thought I'd bring it up to you. Don't think you can be used by God with the life that you've lived. Wow. I already gave it to him. (laughs) I already told him everything. I already told him. And he still loves me. So, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. The enemy has no leverage with someone who sold out to Christ. A good friend of mine has a couple of, couple of daughters. He told me this story and I thought it was great. He said he couldn't get the youngest daughter to clean her room. Imagine that. I don't know how old she was. She's probably six, seven years old, something like that. And he said, I was in the living room. I said, if you don't go clean your room, said, I'm going to spank you. I mean, that's the ultimate, isn't it? You know, boy, that did it. He said, man, she just took off right back to the room. Said about two minutes later, she came back out. And he says, are you telling me you've cleaned your room? She goes, no. Says, spank me. (laughs) Boom. Leverage gone. You see? (laughs) You know, it's just gone. You know, you can't hold that against me. And, And I mean, he just, you know, he said, I had nothing to do. When, when, when the enemy has no leverage, then they fear you. The enemy fears you at that point. They cannot, they cannot bind you at that point because the power and the grace and the blood of Christ just flows through you so freely. I used to squirrel hunt a lot. Not unusual at the beginning of the season to, to be near a creek and see a tree that maybe had fallen. Maybe just one branch in there. And everything was great. You know, the water's flowing fine. By the end of the squirrel season, guess what? All kinds of stuff gathered up against it. 
You know what I'm saying? A little branch here, a little branch there, something else. It all just gets snagged on that. And it's the same way when God's power begins to flow in our lives and there's that one thing that I've not confessed, that one thing I'm holding back from Him, that one thing that keeps me from being sold out. And therefore, it's not too long before we're saying, I can't figure out why I don't feel God's power. Why the enemy's saying, I know Paul, I know Jesus, don't know you. You're no threat to me. I close with this. And uh, when I read it, it's a true story. At least it was purported to be. I have no reason not to believe it. But it was uh, a man in the Bahamas had built a house on a beach and wanted to raise his family there. And he built it with his own hands. And uh, he and his wife lived there. Uh, their kids grew up, moved off the islands, and his wife died, and so he was left by himself in this house. And one day, a young man came, knocked on his door, introduced himself, and he said, I walk by your house every day to work, and he said, I want to buy it. He said, I have three young children of my own. He said, I know you're here alone. And uh, I would like to buy your house, raise my kids here. And the man said, no, no, no. He said, this house will never be for sale. He said, I built this with my own hands. He said, we have all kinds of memories here. And uh, I, I don't want to, don't ever want to sell it. Young man said, fine, left. Two weeks later, knock on the door. Guess who? Same kid, same young man. He said, look, he said, I'd like to buy your house. No, no, no. He said, I, same thing. Same story, you know. This went on for over a year. Every two weeks, this young man would come, knock on the door. Man would go through the same response, not going to sell the house. And then he knocked on the door one day, and the man came to the door, invited him in. Had never done that before. He said, please, he said, come on in, come over to the table. He said, I've taken the liberty of having my lawyer draw up a contract to sell you the house. And this young man was elated. I mean, he just couldn't believe it. He said, is this price okay? And he said, anything. He said, anything. He said, my family's going to be so excited you know, that, that we've finally been able to buy the house. He said, our kids will have fun here on the beach and everything's going to be wonderful. He said, please read the contract very carefully. He said, there's only one exception clause. And he said, I want you to be aware of it. He said, when we built this house, he said, my father had given us a commemorative spike from when he worked on the railroad. And he said, that's right there. He said, it's there on the fireplace, right above the small fireplace. And he said, if I try to take that out, he said, the chimney and stuff will come down. And he said, so I will retain the ownership of that small spike. And the guy said, no problem. He said, you know, where do I sign? Signed it. Off they went. The man moved into town and the family moved into the house on the beach. About six months later, the old man really realized he had made a mistake, you know. He missed the house so much. So he went back, you know, knocked on the door. A young man came to the door. And he said, listen, he said, I've made a terrible mistake. And he said, I miss this house so very, very much. He said, is there any way that you would sell this back? And he said, you got to be kidding. He said, my kids love it here. My wife loves it here. He said, no. He said, that's never going to happen. You know, he said, sorry. He said, but you should have thought of that before you sold it. You know, and off he went. Two weeks later, comes back and knocks on the door. And he said, would you consider... He said, listen, 
Listen, old man, he said, I know what you're doing. He said, you're trying to do the same thing to me that I did to you. He said, but it's not going to work. He said, just don't come back here, you know. Try to do what I did every two weeks. He said, not going to work. He said, matter of fact, he said, if you come back, he said, I'll probably just call the police and have you arrested for trespassing. And the old man said, I'll never ask you to sell the house again. Left, came back the next day. Knocked on the door, and the guy said, hey, I, he said, no, no, no. He said, I'm not going to ask you to sell it. He said, but I do want to go see my spike. He said, what are you talking about? He said, the spike over the fireplace, that's still mine. And he said, it says in the contract that I have access to it four times a year. He said, so I want, he said, do whatever you want to do. He said, I'm not selling you the house. No, he said, I didn't ask you to. Takes path into the fireplace, has a bag with him, pulls out of the bag a dead possum, ties it on the spike, leaves. The guy comes running out and he says, you can't do that. And he said, yes, I can. He said, you didn't buy the whole house. He said, you bought everything but that spike. He said, the spike belongs to me and I am free to do with it as I choose. And you cannot do anything about it. A couple weeks later, a young man went into town. You know, can I sell you back your house? (laughs) Can I sell you back your house? We cannot live here with a dead possum hanging over the fireplace. Is that not what the enemy does to us? If we just leave that one thing available... He just comes into our hearts and he hangs something on there because we just haven't sold out. You know, we just haven't sold out. And when God begins to move, there's still that spike of whatever unforgiveness or habit or pride or whatever it might be that we just have not given to Christ. And he just hangs stuff on there all the time, fouls our lives, keeps us miserable. The only thing is, If Jesus comes and removes that spike, nothing gets damaged. Everything gets healed. (laughs) You know, if we will just say, it's all yours. Take that. Take anything. Just clean me out to be completely yours. And you know what will happen the next time the enemy comes? He's going to say, I do know your name. (laughs) I know your name. Lots of God's power and grace flows through your life and it doesn't get stopped by anything isn't that what we want yeah I think so I think so let's just give it all to him Paul said I count everything as loss just to know Christ don't hold anything back don't, it's always leverage for the enemy anything you try to hide becomes leverage for the enemy pray with me will you please Lord, we're thankful for this day and we're thankful for the cross. Thankful for the Holy Spirit that empowers us. We're thankful that you want to just take everything in our lives and make it all yours. You have paid the price to make us clean and holy and vessels fit for your use. And Lord, we just don't want to know the right words to say like the seven sons of Sceva. They knew the, the terminology. They knew the things to say, but their hearts weren't right. But we want to be in that group with Paul, with Jesus. We want the enemy to go, I know those people. 
And I don't want to mess with them. Really don't want to mess with them. And so help us this morning through your spirit to be able to see if there's anything in our lives that we're really trying to cover up. It cannot be covered up. We know the enemy will use it as leverage against us. We just don't want to be those people. We want to be clean before our God today. And so help us through faith today to confess. You've told us in James that if we confess, we're going to be healed. And the reason that is, is because if it's unconfessed, it's just leverage for the enemy. So clean us today according to your will and according to your spirit. Make us useful in the work of your kingdom. Make us known to the enemy for the right reasons. And we will give you praise and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We are going to share this morning in communion. So, Bob, if you will come and... uh, We will...